2: Welcome to the Hardwood Handicappers Podcast.
1: There are a bunch of guys who ain't never played the game, and they never got the girls in high school, and they just want to get into the game. <laughs> With your host, Jonathan Von Tobel. See, the thing is, you guys look at me, you see the backwards hat, the uh, gray socks, the funky outfit, and you say, now this guy's a chump, am I right? i geek. I'm like geek. Only
2: on the v Podcast Network. All right, let's start this episode of Hardwood Handicappers off of the right way. Really excited uh, for our first guest of the day, Simon Gersberg, CEO, ShockQuality.com. uh, is nice enough to give us some time in what has been a busy. Uh, I, I'm sure you're busy as a CEO, uh, but also I'm, I'm not going to lie. So I was shocked. I um, when I when I first stumbled on the Quality and all of that stuff, I just assumed old dude running this thing. Uh, not <laughs> the case. Not the case. You just
0: graduate this weekend. I did well to be completely honest i did not graduate my friends graduated i'm a little behind on credits because of shock quality
1: okay
0: uh but attended graduation i'm uh, now technically a senior in college but i'll be dropping out full-time to go full-time on shock quality
2: i uh, man. well you better uh, come on let's go you gotta work a little bit harder then huh <laughs> So, I mean, I I wanted to start with some of, like, the more basic stuff before we get into actually, you know, the the quality stuff and and the numbers and whatnot. But, you know, I was reading a profile on you. Like, what's this journey been like for you? Because this is a pretty cool thing that you got going on. And I was reading a profile on you and how you got started with a roommate of yours uh, in college and whatnot. Like, this seems to be a pretty cool and fun journey, especially for a young dude.
0: Yeah, it's definitely been fascinating and not where I expected to be probably two years ago when quarantine was happening i didn't think i'd be here two years now uh, to the day now uh but i mean how it all started was basically yeah ran a random roommate in college was one of the stars of the colgate basketball team he connected me to the colgate men's basketball set within my first week of college i've always just been in love with analytics i was writing baseball analytics articles throughout high school obsession of mine just trying to find competitive advantages and edges um for coaches and then uh was doing basically this entire process by hand so charting the quality of shot what percentage each shot probability has it going in so when for example uh Tucker Richardson just got in Colgate great off the dribble three point shooter takes a three that's gonna be better than when I taken off the dribble three. everything's always individualized uh then eventually down the road found a way to automate everything using the same process I used for Colgate's team um and then, I mean, obviously a lot happened between that and now, uh, but obviously the data is very strong and it fuels the coaching customer base and the betting customer base as well.
2: Yes, and that's kind of what I want to get into too, because as you kind of stated there, originally it seems to start as a tool for college basketball coaches. Now it's really catching on in terms of public consumption. Um, and now, you know, the 4A, what was it? Three, this is your third season in terms of tracking NBA shot quality, right?
0: Yes. Yeah. Yes.
2: And then you 4 into the NBA numbers. Uh, So like when you, when you look at like the, now it's being used for public consumption. I'm really curious, like when you, when you, when sports gamblers want to start use this in terms of using this as a handicapping tool, is there any resistance for you on that part? Did you originally want this just to be for coaching? There are some out there who still have a resistance to sports gambling becoming more widespread. It seems that you're more into it being used as a tool for handicappers though.
0: Yes, no, I think it, I think it could it's definitely going to have to be both. It just has to be separated. So like yeah. we'll have two different sites for shotqualitybets.com and shot quality for the coaching side. Uh, but the truth is like the data fuels both sides. It's the same data, but obviously it's it's just doing two different things for those two customers. So, no, I, we'll definitely start ramping up a service I think by October. Uh, for the college men's season coming up, and then obviously the next NBA season as well.
2: So explain if you can. You you dived into it a little bit there when you were talking about you know the uh, the spot of dribble and everything. Uh, but you see some people that are still resistant to something like shot quality, right? Like there's a lot of people who look at it and go, Oh, okay, yeah, they're up three nothing in the series, whatever. Uh, but and it, and it's all part of this, I think, bigger picture like conversation where all of a sudden like analytics and data have like become these pejorative terms where people view them negatively. Uh, but for people who are listening to this, who might have a more open mind, uh, sum it up if you could, like more of like, a, this is why this would be useful to you when it comes to handicapping, not only just NBA, but college basketball. Really funny.
0: Uh, this is my favorite example that uh, somebody's talked about it with. Eli Hershkovich, uh, he works for the Lions. Uh, he basically told me, um, it's just a quantified eye test. Like, like that's the way it should always be. Is like you watch a game and you see a lot of teams missing good looks or you see a lot of bad looks being taken, it's what you would expect to happen. It's so important that it lines up with the eye test. People are always gonna be trolls and doubt analytics, like you're saying, and think of it as in a derogatory way. Um, but the most important thing is that it lines up with what your eyes are seeing. Uh, so that's always what matters to me. Uh, the way it's calculated, it's sound. Uh, it basically just utilizes The player's historic data and valuing more of the current season for each individualized player in each spot. So, when, for example, Chris Paul takes an off the dribble mid range, that's going to be a better shot than when I take an off the dribble mid range or Alfred Payne takes an off the dribble mid range. So, everything is individualized for each guy and then summed up throughout the total of the game, coming up with the overall shot quality score.
2: Yeah, and one of the examples that I that I used in you know this is the first uh, this the first season and really the postseason that I started using uh, your site and your numbers. I thought Phoenix-Dallas, like that series, was a really good example of how your, your numbers and your data could really work. Because if you looked at it from game one, Mavericks lose, win the shot quality score. Game two, get blown out, but cover if you look at the shot quality score. Phoenix's numbers were right in line with their shot quality stuff on the road in Dallas. And you mix that in with everything else when you talk about Dallas better offensive efficiency on the road, uh, wide open shots. If you tracked it by NBA tracking data, were still there for them. Catch and shoot was there. So you put it all together and you get to game seven and the market's like, yeah, seven point favorite in favor of the, the Phoenix suns and using your data along with everything else. You're like, well, the sun's actually haven't really been playing as well as the market would indicate here. And then we saw what happened in game seven. Like, I think that's one of the really good examples of how your data really can help a handicapper in, projecting forward or looking at some of these games for the market might be seeing something else, but the data tells you another story.
0: Exactly. It's always gotta be process over result for everything. Um, uh, the market's going to move based off the result, but everyone else should move based off the process.
2: Yep. So speaking to Dallas, so they're, uh, they were up, what I think, are they up for nothing in the series by shot quality score standpoint?
0: <laughs> it's interesting. So technically they've won every single shot quality score. Um, But if you actually sum up, so like that's not the best way to actually show what the score of the series should be. We basically do it based off the win percent. Mm -hmm. So two of those games that Dallas won the shot quality, they were 50-50 games. So that basically counts as half of a win, half of a win. If you add it up and sum it up, they're basically up in the series like 2.2 to 1.8. So they definitely have a lead in the series, uh, and they've won every shot quality score technically. Uh, but it's definitely a tight series, uh, and obviously, based on the score, it's not. So it's interesting in that four-game sample.
2: Yeah, it is. Well, and I also, like I feel like some would vindicated, and this goes kind of back to what we're talking about here. Where so after the first three games, and you see the shot quality numbers and how Dallas has been performing, and then you realize that in games one and two, right, Golden State closes five and a half, and then six, and you know with cover the numbers, all of that stuff. But we're coming back here for a closeout game potentially. And the markets really adjusted. They're up to a seven and a half point favorite. So the market's increased the power rating here in Golden State because of the way that they've been performing. But again, going back to some of these shot quality metrics, this has been a much closer series than would the surface look would give you. So thus for me and for some handicappers, it should be it'll look immediately at a Dallas Mavericks team
0: who has been underperforming some of their shot their shot quality metrics. No. Yes. No, that's that's the exact process that I think would be smart. but I'm not, I'm not going to advise it because I'm, I'm terrified too. (laughs) I don't, I don't want, I don't want the Twitter trolls coming for me.
2: (laughs) No, of course. Well, and also like, look, I like data and numbers and analytics much as the next guy. There's something to be said of like really good teams and guys who've just done it before. Like at some point there's like a human element of it.
0: Experience. Yeah, totally. Absolutely.
2: And if one team's going to overperform their shot quality metric, I would think it'd be a team with Steph Curry, Draymond Green and Clay Thompson (laughs) and, and coached by Steve Kerr. Right.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
2: So, like, when you're talking about, like, one of the things that I was talking to my co-host, Matt Humans about, I want to get your thoughts on this, is I really thought that using your data, um, the value was really maximized in these playoff series because you're facing the same opponent over the course of a best-of-seven. I I felt like it was – like, there's there's data there and there's quality there to use it, obviously, when it comes to, like, a regular season, but there's so many different outliers when it comes to that, right? Is it a Wednesday, second leg of a back-to-back after you just played in Dallas, like, all of those sort of things – when in a series, you're facing the same opponents with the same tendencies, game plans might adjust. But I thought like when you really looked at it from an NBA standpoint, I think these data is really maximized in terms of playoff series settings. Would you agree with that or no?
0: Absolutely. No, that's exactly how I feel about it, too, because you're getting the same exact context variables that are hard to predict out. Like, for example, Bam Adebayo guarding Joel Embiid or uh, for example, um, player X is out. And uh, now that the next night they're playing the Orlando Magic instead of the Phoenix Suns. Like like, like there's just like stuff when you play a different team, there's gonna be different contextual factors that are gonna be hard to predict out. But when you're playing the same team multiple nights, there's less contextual factors. I think there's actually different contextual factors in the playoffs, just stuff like role players underperforming home away splits, stuff like that. but uh, it's different and it's definitely more predictive because you're playing the same team like almost every other night.
2: Yep. So I'm, I'm curious, like, would, what would you say that if you're if you're looking at some of your data when when it comes to the NBA? Are there any big differences when it comes to shot quality data and calculating it when it comes to NBA in college? The games are played a little bit differently, more, more low post oriented in college hoops, as opposed to the NBA, which is a little bit more spread out three point shooting. Are there any real big differences in terms of that?
0: The biggest difference is this more variability in them because yeah. there's more minutes, so more threes um, and more shots. So the, it's um, basically uh, over the course of the season, shot quality, the shot quality scores, like if you were to sum up and see like how predictive shot quality scores are to actual results they're more predictive in college just because there's less minutes in the game. So they line up more frequently because there's less variability than the NBA game. But it's not even that the, that the data is worse. It's the same data. Mm-hmm. It's just because there's less variability. Um, so that's just one example of how they're different. And obviously the play styles too, like like obviously uh, playing a little more low post uh, in college. I mean, I think a lot of colleges moving more towards a little more rim and three stuff, uh, but NBA is obviously way, way, Five years ahead of college in that way. Yeah.
2: So and what I really like too is, you know, the the conversation around basketball, which is like the death of the mid-range shot and whatnot. But but the cool thing about shot quality, because you've brought up Chris Paul, you know, a couple of times is you know, a team like Phoenix, who's really mid-range oriented, when I was going through some of your numbers, I but initially I expected like, oh, well, like their shot quality luck because you have that metric right on the right side, it would probably be, they'd probably be a little lucky just because they're a mid-range oriented team, but that's not the case because you have two elite mid-range scorers and Devin Booker and Chris Paul, so those mid-range shots are more valuable for a team like that as opposed to like, I don't know, like an Orlando Magic type team.
0: Exactly. No, that's yeah. the biggest thing about the site and what honestly like makes me the most happy when I talk about it with the coach. because. I, I'm not against the mid-range shot. Like, it actually, like, bothers me when people say, like, oh, like, only rim and three, only rim and three. It's about getting the right shot for the right guy. Yep. Like, when Kevin Durant takes a mid-range, like, you're not going to get mad at Kevin Durant for taking a pull-up mid-range, and he's going to shoot, like, 55% on. Um, so, yeah, I, I, that that always bothers me, and I'm happy you said that as well. Cause yeah,
1: I'm not-
2: no, I've I've had that conversation a lot too, because for some reason when I started covering the NBA, I've become some weird defender of the league. Like people always come at me with stuff like that, and it's like, and it's it, like to your point, like it's not about getting rid of the mid range shot. It's about getting rid of the mid range shot for guys who shouldn't be shooting it. Like Kawhi Leonard exactly. from mid range <laughs> is freaking awesome. Like of course you exactly. want him taking a mid range shot, exactly. but I don't exactly. want you know player X to start coming up and stepping into mid range jumpers. Like no, of course not.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
2: So one of the things, too, is uh, I'm really curious as I kind of look forward and I was looking at a couple of examples just I really wanted to dive into it um, was using what we're talking about when it comes to like record luck that you have that in terms of your team standings to project forward for teams with win totals and specifically teams who are kind of rolling it back here a little bit. One of the best examples was so last season, um, one of the teams that I had circled to play this year under their win total was New York, the Knicks. I thought they were a team that got very lucky in terms of the way they played defense, the way they played offense. Yep. I didn't really get to quantify that. Then I look at your numbers today and I'm searching through the site. I'm like, Oh, wow. Like, look at that last year. I think they were last in terms of record luck uh, and there was some negative regression coming for them. So if, if you're talking about, I don't think it, and you can correct me on this maybe, because I don't think it necessarily translates for each team because roster change, coaching changes, things like yep. that. But if if it's a team that largely brings back their core, I think there's a real value in looking at that record luck and projecting for win totals and maybe seeing teams are going to go over or under their win total.
0: I think that is really, really interesting point. You brought up the only thing that pisses me off is I'm actually a Knicks fan. Um, So when (laughs) I, when I saw it on the site last year that they would keep winning games and keep losing the shot quality, the main reason was, so the numbers at the beginning of the season, uh, it actually updates retroactively. Um, So let's just say, for example, Julius Randle last year ended the season shooting 41% from three, his career number is 33. Mm -hmm. So, through the first 30 games of the season until the sample gets big enough, he's going to stay like closer to his career than the individualized season. So he probably ended last season in terms of like the expected three-point percentage number around like 36 or 37 because he's not a 41% three-point shooter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's what he's shooting throughout this point in the season. So it'll recorrect those games. So even at the beginning of the season, the Knicks were probably even way worse than they ended up uh, until that got corrected. But yeah, that's like one of the best examples of a team... Just like, I don't want to say getting lucky, but just like the way they were playing wasn't sustainable. They actually upgraded their roster, got better players for the next season, and they actually yeah. played like significantly worse as a team as well. Um, so, yeah, that is one of the best examples for sure. And so, the Bucks, too, actually, sorry, sorry to interrupt. No, but they were also, they were like the number one team in positive record luck the entire regular season. Uh, it's not separated playoffs or regular season on the site, actually. I should probably add that. Uh, but for the Bucks in the regular season, were the number one positive regression team going into the playoffs, and then obviously and on and we're cooking.
2: So I think really like and, and, and like I like this kind of stuff, man. Like this is so much fun to dive into, click around. Do you do, you do the box scores on your site? Are they live during games? Like can you can you track in game shot quality?
0: Not yet, but that is something. Hopefully, moving forward, we might look forward to. Um, it's like usually like two to four hours after the game
2: around. Okay. So. but Well, because the reason I asked you, know, I was reading a couple of your blog posts, you know, in the Grizzlies game against the Timberwolves. Like, it's a, it's a really good example of, like, shot quality and how that could play out, not only over um, the course of, you know, larger sample size in terms of series – but in a game, right? In terms of dominating shot quality, but being down. And then all of a sudden in a fourth quarter, just like that, the shot quality starts to correct itself and the Memphis Grizzlies come back and they end up winning that game. And, you know, just thinking again, covering this from a gambling standpoint, I mean, the value of something like that from an in-game wagering standpoint, it's interesting because it's a smaller sample size. So it's not necessarily going to correct itself in a game, uh, but the value in that in terms of in-game line versus shot quality where it's at and trying to find some edges there would be very advantageous, I think, for a lot of betters.
0: Definitely, definitely, it is very, very interesting for sure. Yeah,
2: man. Hey, I think you. This is a this is really cool, man. Like I got to tell you, like I'm uh, clicking through this and doing all this sort of stuff. And I know too, like I, I've seen you retweeting everything. Uh, it is catching on. Uh, Nick Wright, who uh, very much does not like advanced analytics, um using yours and invoking shot quality data to prove his point on some of these sites. Now. <laughs> It is pretty interesting when guys like that start to use this and like this is starting from an NBA standpoint to really catch on in the masses. I think I like I've seen your brand can like um, with NBA stuff more and more over the last few weeks than
0: I personally have ever seen. Yeah, no, I didn't really see this coming as well. I think the main reason for it is exactly what you were saying, though, is like the fact that this data is so relevant in the playoffs in the regular season, it definitely has relevancy and it's will be interesting like the first 20 games in terms of like regression candidates for teams and players. Uh, but for the playoffs, it's just like the best, best contextual factors. Um, so that's probably why it's getting, I guess, a little more popular now, obviously.
2: Yeah. Well, Simon, again, Simon Gersberg, CEO of ShotQuality.com. Uh, I don't want to take a, a lot of your time, but I just wanted to you know, talk to you for a couple of minutes, uh, get some insight on everything. It's been absolutely fantastic uh, in terms of tracking this work and uh, you got a subscriber in me and I have been telling people as much as possible uh, to try it out because it's been, and, and like, to be honest, it's, it's been a really good tool for me and, and using it with a lot of other stuff as well, you know, like this compared with like, I'm a big fan of cleaning the glass. So like their non-garbage time minutes, things like that, yep. you know, like this Celtics heat series we're going to see resume later today, uh, By the shot quality standards, I think they've won the shot quality score three out of the four games that they've played. They got a positive 13.4 net rating and non-garbage time minutes, uh, like you, all of these things put together, it tells you that the Celtics team is performing much better than they probably should be against Miami. And those things are obviously really valuable, man.
0: Absolutely. 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 Well, I
2: appreciate it, dude. I know you're busy. I won't uh, again, take a lot of your time, but thanks a lot for, <laughs> uh, for hopping on, man. I really appreciate no, it.
0: Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. You got it, man.
2: All right, dude, I'll, I'll, I'll tweet it out link you in it, but thanks again. This is the Hardwood Handicappers Podcast. All right, loaded episode of Hardwood Handicappers on this Wednesday. Uh, we just got done talking with uh, Simon Gersberg, CEO of ShotQuality.com. And uh, now a man of very equal importance because we got a lot to get to in the
1: next month. Jim Root, three-man weave, fill the 68 as well. What's up, dude? Oh, not too much. I mean, what an underwhelming follow-up to shot quality you get me i feel bad for the listeners if they're sticking around they're the true hardwood handicapper fans nah no way uh well i don't know if there's
2: hardwood handicapper fans per se Uh, i think my mom makes up most of the downloads so we'll see (laughs) um but this so this is this is a cool time of year because they have postseason slowing down obviously we're down to you know every other day in terms of being played but we're a month away from the nba draft uh and i know you like to follow the nba draft as well so what better way to start this conversation than talk about some of the lottery prospects and some high risers after the uh, NBA combine. And uh, I know you watch these guys a lot closer than I do. So I want to get your thoughts on a couple of them, but where I wanted to start was the obvious place, which is the the big three as we are going to call them. Cause it does seem that we only have three guys in play for the top overall pick. And at least by uh, one odds, uh, one odds maker, that is the case. Javari Smith jr. Out of, uh, I was going to say Oregon for some reason, out of Auburn, Chet Holmgren, out of Gonzaga and Paolo Mincaro out of Duke. Now I was surprised about this, Jim, and I get your initial thoughts on it. So most spots have Jabari Smith Jr. is about like a dollar sixty ish favorite to go with the first overall pick. It's kind of surprised about the move after the Orlando Magic got the first uh, selection. Bet online has Jabari Smith Jr. as a minus two twenty five
1: favorite to go first overall. That's wild, isn't it? It's it's crazy. I'm guessing it has to do with, there's there a, a report, I think it was yesterday, that uh, Jonathan Giovanni from ESPN basically said, Orlando seems settled on Smith. Oklahoma City seems settled on Holmgren. The the players have talked about it. They're excited. It's not obviously like public, but he's saying he's hearing this and, and he's heard that those guys are fairly clued into their their destinations, which a month out from the draft, I'm pretty surprised that there's something that locked in. There's a lot of workouts to go through. If I'm Orlando, I want to get Paolo Bancaro and Jabari Smith in the same gym and and throw them at each other. I'm sure their agents will not allow that, but uh, yeah, that's a lot of certainty for this point uh, in the process. I I think I saw DraftKings and FanDuel had Bancaro, something like 10 to one to go to that top spot, which I I guess since it's an information based event, then you you really can know. And and there's not uh, a lot of uncertainty there, but that just seems like, pushing him out of this top three a little bit more than he needs to be yeah
2: and we're gonna to get to him as like a player but like I put in my notes for Bancaro. I uh, would you agree with the assessment that he seems the most NBA ready like to get off the floor run and I think it would be bankero out of those three that would initially be the one that uh, I think like in terms of catching up with his body his game he would be most ready from day one
1: yeah he looks he looks very comfortable in his yeah. body like he, it the size he's filled out uh Smith has the length and and some of the, the attributes too but Ben Carroll like is an NBA ready 6'10", 250 skilled with the ball in his hands. Uh, so you throw that in with the fact that he also has plenty of upside. I mean, he has, as an initiator, I am surprised that he's yep. already getting a little bit wedged out of that conversation.
2: Yep. And, and like, personally, I want, like, I like all these players, especially the last couple of days, watching more and more of them. Like Jabari Smith Jr. Is not a guy that I watched a ton of during the regular season, but watching more, uh, it is hard not to be impressed with his skill set. but, and you watch Ben Caro when you got six nine two fifty, and like you said, it's a great way to put it comfortable in his body and the ability to work from all areas of the floor. Um, he's a really exciting player. So let's start here because I want to kind of go through these prospects, tie them to teams, and see your thoughts on each one of these, and see if we can see uh, where they might fit as well. But when I watch Jabar Smith Jr., and this is kind of where I wanted to begin, is it wrong of me, like when we're talking about like? Like, why you would take it – because, again, like, with the first overall pick, you want a game changer. You want a franchise guy. You want a dude who is going to transcend, essentially, be your block to build on. This is a very simplistic way to put it, so I understand this. So don't kill me for it. But what is Smith besides a really, really good 3 and D player in the NBA?
1: That's – I'm not going to kill you for it. That's kind of the question where it's like, in this era, if your top three franchise changer isn't a guy you – truly throw the ball to he's more of a play finisher than he is a play creator Uh, and maybe that's at this point in his development he's got the the beautiful jumper with the high release but yeah I mean a lot of the stuff where when Auburn needed a basket and threw it to him it was just like all right I can get you a tough jumper Uh, Mm -hmm. he he did a lot of isolation against switches where he get a smaller defender on him and he would just get a fadeaway jumper over the top and look he made a ton of them but I don't know that he's going to be able to attack in the same way in the NBA. There's a lot more versatility in the way people guard. Uh, there's not as many small guards you can pick on like there are in the SEC. Uh, so yeah, I mean, the fact that he doesn't really do things with the ball in his hands, he doesn't create for others. I love the skill set, but there's a reason I think there's there's some people in the the draft Twitter sphere, which is a deep, dark place that I don't encourage people <laughs> to to dive too too far into. But There's some people that have him fourth behind Jay Nivey, just I I think because of exactly what you're mentioning, where he's not really a give the ball to him guy and let him initiate. So can he be the best player on a a title team or a deep run in the playoffs? I, I don't know. Yeah, and that's like
2: you don't want to undersell it. And three and D guys are really important. But again, the value of the first overall pick—you want a dude who's going to change things. You got—you want a guy who is going to be multifaceted with his game. And while I think Jabari Smith could be pretty good, um, I just don't really see it in terms of the first overall selection. But here's the other thing too, which is this is the interesting about the NBA draft, right? In the NFL draft you will see teams focus on need. Like it, it, Generally, it is a need-filled kind of draft. So, if, like, if I need an outside linebacker and I'm in a spot where a good outside linebacker is there, I'm going to take an outside linebacker. In the NBA, it, wherever you're picking, especially at the top of the draft, generally it's just projection and talent and, like, you want the most talented guy. But I bring that up because, like, I, I feel like Chet Holmgren is still the most talented guy in this draft. But then when you look at the Orlando Magic, signing Wendell Carter Jr. to an extension right, in this, uh, right at like the beginning of this season, right? They, they really like Wendell Carter Jr. as a center. He had a really good year. It does make a little bit more positional sense to go outside of Chet Holmgren and center because you feel like you have your guy in Wendell Carter Jr. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. And then they've, you know, the the report came out that they're kind of okay with Mo Bamba, probably not being yeah, on the magic next year. And those, yeah. those rumors are flying around. Uh, but yeah, it's in the NBA with the way it's as, positionless or close to it's evolving that way. Uh, I don't think they should be drafting by need. And I know Carter played alongside Bomba sometimes this year. He played in a couple, two big lineups. Uh, Holmgren has the ability to do that too. He played alongside Drew Timmy. It really his, his uh, appeal is that he can be the floor stretcher around that. He can pass a little bit. He can dribble the ball. Um, he and Carter could both protect the rim. So maybe there'd be some hiccups with their perimeter defense, but mm-hmm. I think that's something you figure out as you go along rather than forcing yourself to take Smith because you think he fits better. I, I Like you said, fit should not be a concern at the top of the draft.
2: Yeah. And that kind of gets me back to like, so that was going to be my question about Holmgren. So you think he could play like a four or five with a, a Carter type? Cause here's the thing. Like we think about like the Boston Celtics, for example, right? Robert Williams is their center, but one of the big changes with what they did was defensively, he's actually their power forward because that that was the big thing now he's off ball he crashes into help makes the biggest difference in the world with the way they play and more traditional like drop and pick and roll coverage al horford's the guy defensively and then you flip that role offensively you could kind of i think you could kind of see that with a wendell carter jr chet holmgren front court if you're with orlando and i also just think like again like the more i watch chet holmgren because i was it's not like i was on the fence of like whether or not he was going to be good i I think he's going to be good but watching him more the last couple of days I don't know how you pass up on a guy like that. Like, the potential is really high, I think, for a guy like Holmgren.
1: Yeah, the, the Bucks are the same way with the Giannis and, and Brook Lopez. Like, yep. put your best defender as the off-ball destroyer. Put him on a bad defender so that he can just help like crazy. And that's, like you said, that's how the Celtics optimize Robert Williams. I think I think Holmgren can do that. Uh, the easy knock on him is the frame, but, like, he's 19. I, you know, you can put him in an NBA weight program. I think he's going to be able to put on some strength. The weird hesitance I have with him uh, when I watch him both on TV and in person, he just moves a little slowly. I I compare it to uh, Ant-Man when he gets really big in the Marvel movies (laughs) and suddenly his reflexes are slow and it's kind of elongated. Uh, But that's also probably something he can grow into. Uh, You know, he he sprouted and became real tall and long at the same time. So he's still uh, uncomfortable in his body, kind of the opposite of what we said about Bancaro. I think he can definitely get there, but there is something kind of like loping about his movements that is a little bit concerning. But everything else, the skill set, the intelligence, the IQ, the shot blocking, like he's going to be really, really good. Uh, I'm, I'm less concerned about the strength. So it's really just the movement thing for me.
2: Well, and I think like I, and I'm not a scientist. He does genetically look like a guy who's going to be tough to put weight on right? The (laughs) shoulders aren't very wide. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I don't think you're getting really that far uh, with that. And some guys it works for, but you know, it works for a Kevin Durant when you're as skilled and as quick as he is. And, And like when it comes to Holmgren, he does seem to have like that in his bag. Like I was watching a couple of the things where he, he can create pretty well and he can hit mid-range shots. There are a couple of possessions where, you know, he like dribbles into an elbow jumper and he hits it pretty smoothly. And you kind of like stuff like that. What do you think his ceiling is offensively? Because defensively, it's easy to watch those highlights and he's coming behind little guys and he's swatting shots out of the air. I think did he average like three blocks a game or something like that for Gonzaga. Um, yeah. But what do you make of him in terms of his offensive skill set outside of like trailer and transition hitting threes, more half-court oriented? What is Chet Holmgren?
1: Yeah, I, I think he can be kind of the off the bounce. He, he can give you a little bit more of that. Like, he's not Jabari Smith level with that ability, but I think he can get there. I mean, he was so non central to their offensive attack this year. I think he yeah. only took 10 shots uh, in like, you know, less than half of their games. They were focused on, on playing through Drew Timmy in the post and Andrew Nemhard, a name we'll bring up later, was running everything uh, from the backcourt. So, we haven't seen his full potential offensively. He, he kind of got to be a complimentary guy, which almost was, was really ideal for the way he fit at this stage in his career. But because of how smooth the stroke is and, and the fact that uh, he can put the ball on the ground and he's not, you know, he doesn't have a shaky handle really, uh, I think there is a high ceiling there. You just kind of have to figure out what it's going to be and, and how he fits alongside the guys that he's going to play with.
2: So for, for you,
1: he's the best player in this draft. I think he's the highest ceiling uh, and that's probably why I would take him first. Cause I I think there's just a chance that he's completely ludicrous and and a guy we haven't really seen before the unicorn word gets thrown around probably a little too frequently, but he has the potential to be all of that. I mean, Anthony Davis didn't really look like a guy. We'd put a ton of weight on either, but he had the shot blocking and he added the shooting Uh, and Holmgren maybe he'll, you know, he's probably not going to be Anthony Davis. That's a, that's a really high uh, expectation to put on him, but He can be something similar, I think, in the way he impacts both ends and gives you a lot uh, as a shot blocker and as a creator. Like 20 pounds
2: heavier with muscle. That's a good visual for Chet Holmgren. I would love to see it
1: like in five years, just like jacked Chet
2: Holmgren, who's still as massive as he is. Um, So let me ask you this. Um, When you're looking at this overall from the standpoint of like, like, because this is what I always think when it comes to drafts and this is what always makes me laugh. Because sometimes it's, I don't know, I think I'm using this term right, like Occam's razor, like sometimes like the solution is like the most obvious choice. Is that what it is? So like, for example, it's always weird to me in draft stuff and with all this knowledge out there, everything you read about these top guys, almost every paragraph you will see in some form or fashion, Chet Holmgren is the most talented player in this draft or has the highest ceiling in this draft. And yet we see the odds and he's not projected to be the first overall selection. And we see people doing everything and saying, Hey, what about Shaden Sharp as the first overall selection? Or Javen Ivey is this. Sometimes it's just that simple. Right. And when you look at like, and I use the example of this past NFL draft, you know, people are talking about four quarterbacks, five quarterbacks, you know, fifth year control all this stuff. But then every report you read is this quarterback, this quarterback class sucks. It's not really that good. Probably not going to get that many guys going. And that's the most obvious thing that happens, right? Only one guy goes in the first round. And that's what kind of keeps bringing me back to Chet Holmgren, which is, I think there's some really good value in taking him. Despite that information, Gavoni's report that says that it does look like the league is assuming that Smith is going to be the guy first overall, I just feel like if you're Orlando and you're sitting there looking at this, like like screw fit, you can make it fit if you got enough good enough coaching staff. Why would you pass up on this for what could be like we talked about a good 3 and D player? It just to me it makes more sense it would be homegrown thus playing him to go first overall.
1: Yeah. And it's a little surprising too, because John Hammond, the GM there, I mean, that's the guy that took the big swing on Giannis and has kind of been known for give me a ton of length and even some skill and we'll figure out the rest we'll develop. Um, So maybe he sees a little more in what Smith can do on the ball. Uh, But I, I think another fun way to put it is Holmgren is the process guy. Like if you are trying to run the process of Philly or what Oklahoma city is basically doing right now, just taking the biggest swings, I think he's the guy you look at and that's why he's he's getting mocked to number 2 to, to Oklahoma City fairly consistently across the board.
2: Uh, but you having said that cuz I love what Oklahoma City's doing. He'd be freaking awesome in Oklahoma City. Like
1: I think he would fit so well with what they do. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean you put, you put him with Gilgis Alexander and is kind of in that same developmental yeah. vein they're trying to figure out uh, what what he's going to be. I think they could recreate the the famous box picture with Giannis, Larry Sanders and John Henson stretching their arms from Three points to three point line. You can you could do that with Holmgren and Pokashevsky and insert player Giddy X yep. there. Yeah, Giddy. That yep. works. <laughs> yep.
2: Be ridiculous. All right. So that leads us to the third guy, of the big three, Pal Bancaro. We kind of alluded to, you know, how both of our thoughts here. I'm a really big fan of Bencaro. And, and as I mentioned, seems like he's going to be very NBA ready. Uh, he seems like he's got a lot of growth there too. I would ask this, because you mentioned his passing ability. Does he have the ability, you think, to become one of these like point forward type of players? Because he looks like a pretty good passer in transition. There's multiple times. I don't know about strictly running an offense, but he does look like a guy that could initiate your offense pretty frequently in the NBA.
1: Yeah, I think he's he's way more capable of running a pick and roll. I I, I think Jabari Smith ran like 12 pick and rolls the entire season. Carroll ran something like 70. Like they, they were comfortable putting the ball in his hands, having Mark Williams or whoever screen for him and, and let him operate. Uh, I also thought their offense was often best when they played through him in like mid post because he's huge and he can attack one on one. But if you send help, he is a good enough passer to see where it's coming from, process that and hit the right pass. Uh, And that's I mean, the the processing speed, that's kind of huge for for your primary creator or even secondary in the NBA. I I was pretty impressed with him all season and his ability to to spray the ball around and make the right read. So I, I think he's fully capable of that um I, I go back to it i i like you said he's the most nba ready guy i think he's probably going to average the most points as a rookie mm-hmm. uh, just looking at the class is assuming he gets in a place where he gets a ton of shots up uh, but the playmaking is is there too so i am a big fan of ben caro as well i would have him too behind home grin and i uh, feel pretty decent about it
2: one of the things that sticks out about his numbers 33.8 percent from three uh, but he shot like 73 percent from the free throw line that, that should project to a little bit of a better three-point shot. Any concerns there or should you think that, eh, you know, one year, kind of maybe an off year, he should be a better three-point shooter?
1: Yeah, he, he took him fairly confidently. Uh, like, he took more than Holmgren did, uh, higher volume. And against their best competition, he shot 35%. You know, it's a little okay. smaller sample, only 16 games. But I, I think the stroke is there. When I look at it mechanically, it looks pretty smooth to me. I don't think there's any – broken hitchiness to it so I I would have I would estimate that he becomes a pretty solid three-point shooter in the league
2: so the commonality between Holmgren and Jabari Smith is I think they they translate to be like above average defenders uh what about Venkero? because there are some pretty odd defensive low lights for him when you watch him at times
1: yeah there's he you know he creates some of the events a little bit but uh he's not as fleet of foot he is not the shot blocker that either of those guys is despite also being you know, that's huge. 6'10", you know, big, uh, has the size. So if you're not getting that kind of impact, I, I could see maybe being a little lower on it, but I don't, because of the size and he at least has, you know, knowledge of the game and instincts, I think he should be able to get there. Like, I don't think he'll be Jabari Parker defensively where he's lost and, says I don't get paid to play defense, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, so I, I think he should be acceptable, but yeah, he's not going to be a stopper. He's not going to be like a all defense candidate ever in his career.
2: Is he uh is he good as a screener? Cause like Houston's got the third overall pick and I just keep going back to like a Jalen green power bank, pick and roll, which could be probably, I would think pretty devastating.
1: Yeah, I think he's solid. Uh, and he did uh, screen a lot this year. I'm looking at he, like 30 possessions as a role, man, this year, not a ton. Okay. Uh, but they, yeah, they they did a lot of just kind of spread and attack for Duke. They want to get you on your heels and kind of beat you one on one. So I don't know how much he was really used as like, let's create the mismatch by having him screen. Uh, I know that's that's such a huge thing in the playoffs right now. Uh, but I'm, I'm sure he can get there. He's got the size. He got the bulk. I would think uh, he could become a problem in that regard. So you,
2: when you're looking at this overall, some spots – did you say he was as high as 10-to-1 right now, Palo
1: Bancaro, to be the first overall pick? I think I looked yesterday, and that's where I saw him at like DraftKings or, or FanDuel.
2: Yeah, personally, if if I'm getting double digits on that, that might be worth uh, – like Holmgren and, and Bancaro would be the way that I would play this. Like I'm not comfortable laying a price with, with uh, Jabari Smith, given everything that we've talked about here. Um, and if you're telling me that Bancaro is 10-to-1 – a guy that I think is most NBA ready and looks like he would be pretty damn good for a lot of these teams. And looking at this right now in front of me, DraftKings, yeah, yeah, nine to one right now over at DraftKings, still in that range. Personally, that sounds like something that's worth grabbing for the first overall pick.
1: Yeah, I mean, if this was three days before the draft and we're pretty certain all these reports are concrete and and a lot closer to coming to fruition, maybe I'd feel less certain, but it's a whole month. I, I really feel like a lot can change And I do think it's all coming from that one report from from Gavoni. And if he's wrong or got fed some bad information, or even if something changes in the next couple of weeks, suddenly you're sitting there with one of the best three players at nine or 10 to one. It's, it's, it seems worthwhile.
2: Well, and I always like the wording of the report. So I pulled it up while you were talking. Uh, So he says, uh, this is from the report quote, while magic executives made it clear they will conduct a thorough process, even extending beyond the widely believed top three prospects. Most NBA teams firmly believe that it's a formality and that Smith is all but assured to become the top pick. So it sounds like his sources aren't even coming from the Magic. It just sounds like it's coming from every other team but the Magic.
1: Right, and, and maybe that's what the the teams other than the Magic want. Like, right. go ahead, take Jabari Smith. We want the other two guys to fall. <laughs> right,
2: exactly. I mean, it's probably it's a really good point. So, all right, we'll see. So, now, as we're kind of waiting, uh, NBA draft props have yet to come up. So, what I wanted this conversation to be more like was talking about some of these prospects, how they project, and, and guesstimating where, like, a draft position could be and, and where you'd be willing to play them over or under, something like that. Uh, so, let's go to, you know, I mentioned one guy that has been bantied about potentially as, you know, a top pick. In the NBA draft, I don't see it personally. I see the explosiveness and the talent, but I don't see first overall selection. That would be Jaden Ivey out of Purdue. Uh, is it is it prisoner of the moment because he's just become a superstar at this point? I get a ton of John Morant vibes watching him play offensively.
1: Yeah, it's he has the same kind of burst. Like yeah. They are both like holy crap level athletes where – I said everything Holmgren looks like he's kind of loping and in a little slow, everything Jaden Ivy does is sudden. It's like, Oh, okay. He's got burst to his first step. Uh, when he gets a defensive rebound and he pushes in transition, he can glide and cover the entire court and three or four dribbles get straight to the rim. So yeah, I, I like very impressed by him, but I don't think he has uh, the same kind of playmaking decision-making as, as the instincts that Morant does. Uh, so the physical traits I think match, but maybe he's more likely to become Russell Westbrook in that sometimes he, he's frustrating in his inability to to fully impact winning at that level. I mean, he kind of vanished from their loss to St. Peter's in the in the uh, the NCAA tournament. It, it was like, where's Jaden Ivey? Wasn't even shooting for most of the game, and then he kind of did late. But uh, yeah, I I think the the Morant stuff is more physical attributes and then yeah. there's more to it that i don't think uh, i don't think he brings
2: yeah and like because when when you watch him he really thrives like if he's not winning on the first step and just blowing by guys or coming screaming off of a screen like on a pin down or something like that and either getting ahead of steam to the basket or you know pulling up and hitting a three because he seems to be ahead of where morant is as a shooter um but if that's not going really well Like I have questions about him running a pick and roll. He doesn't really seem to have like a mid range like jumper or floater type of thing. So like if he's playing against drop coverage, can he take can he take advantage of that? Like Morant can. Doesn't really seem like that's the case. Um, And then the other part of it, I put this down in my notes: uh, risk taker on defense. Shitty Marcus Smart on that end of the floor. Would that be (laughs) like you know just like a risk taker who's like going for steals and is trying to get pretty aggressive? And Marcus Smart, give him credit. He he knows more often than not the right time to do that there's a lot of different possessions where you're watching Jaden Ivy and he's jumping for a steal or something that he's completely caught out of position. And his guys like cutting to the basket or catching the wide open for a three and he's scrambling back to contest. Like, like I think like a, a very bad version of Marcus smart was what I was watching on defense.
1: Yeah. The, the knock on Purdue all season was that they were not good enough defensively. And he was the reason for that. They were huge. Like they were one of the biggest teams in the entire country. He always had uh, most of the time. He had a seven, four shot blocker behind him and, and Trivion Williams is a decent, rim protector not great uh, but so he always had cover behind him which maybe uh infused some of the confidence to take those gambles but yeah he wasn't a guy that you could throw at the other team's best player and say hey like kind of t- take the head off the snake defend him getting him his get in his grill which is disappointing for someone of his athletic caliber uh that was always kind of a knock it's like why isn't Jaden ivy getting after it more defensively uh, whether it's causing more havoc or just like you said or, or uh, staying in somebody's pocket Hip pocket and bothering them. I, he he was not a great defender this year. And I think that's gonna probably carry over into the pros.
2: So I'm so the right now, the draft order, um, barring any trades, of course. Uh, we have the uh, Sacramento Kings at number four. I've seen a couple of mock drafts putting him at number four, but the Kings have a litany of guards. I, I don't think it really makes a ton of sense, although we it's the Kings. So we saw them go with uh, Mitchell last year that really screwed me on a ticket, uh, by like one, I think it was like a half position or something in the draft. Um, but I'd be really curious, like. I feel like he'd get a draft position of like four and a half thinking that like the Kings are going to be the spot. And I, I would look to play that over the you know, Pistons might go for him. The Pacers might go for him, but I don't know if he's going to land in the top four, especially with we're going to get to like Keegan Murray, Keegan Murray seems like a guy who's going to be a perfect fit for Sacramento, what they need. But if it's like four and a half, I'd look to play him over. No.
1: Yeah, I would too. Cause you're basically saying, is he Sacramento's pick or not? Yeah. And I would say, because I think we are pretty established on the top three. I don't think there any of them are going to gamble for Ivy. So yeah, I would I would lean towards over. I think there's a chance even the the mystery box that is Shaden Sharp gets gets some love from the Kings there. Uh, So yeah, I would I would go over that. And I I agree. I think that's what his trap position will be.
2: All right. So you know what? Let's go there then. Uh, Because Shaden Sharp. So I I was going through some of the stuff and like I'm like, oh wait a minute. That's right. I'm like he was at Kentucky, but he didn't play um this is from rafael barlow's director of scouting at nba big board he talked to an anonymous scout quote he being sharp barely practiced at kentucky didn't want to play in games didn't want to play at the combine who's advising him he can't hide forever does he want to play in the summer league it seems like there's a lot of questions about him and i'm watching like zabruder film of him in high school and whatnot um so what happened at kentucky like how worried like it's all about projection in the nba but like at some point like you kind of want to see the guy. And he's like, he's not doing anything. There's He's got self-reported measurables, Jim. They're like, he's got a self-reportable bit. I'm like, how can you buy into that kind of stuff?
1: Yeah, and he's he's by far the guy I've seen the least of up in this range. I mean, I I didn't watch a ton of the G League either, so if we get on Dyson Daniels, I won't mm-hmm. have a ton of uh, input there. But, I mean, I haven't seen a lot of Shaden Sharp because no one's seen a lot of Shaden Sharp. He, he just hasn't played since high school. Uh, like Like you mentioned, he hasn't practiced much at Kentucky either. Uh, there was a whole ordeal down the stretch of the Kentucky season of are they going to let Sharp play a little bit? Is he going to step in and give them some games down the stretch, even just like 20 minutes a game or something? And whether it was his advisors or uh, Calipari not wanting him to play, whatever it was, he, he never took the court. And so that's, you know, it is all projection. The tools are there. Uh, apparently late in his high school career, he really blossomed the, the final AAU circuit. He was just a complete killer. Uh, I know Jeff Goodman said he was like his favorite guy to watch. Uh, I, I believe Goodman also said he'd have a better college season than than Zion Williamson, which obviously oh, is insane. <laughs> yeah, insane. Uh, had he taken the court, I, I still think that would have been uh, crazy to even pro- proclaim. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's the ultimate mystery box. And it's like we haven't seen anything on the court that we could call a bad habit yet. So it's all kind of a lure of the unknown, as I like yeah. to call it. Yeah. It's
2: wild to me. Like watch it. It's great. He looks great in the highlights and some of the footage that you're seeing, but like, then you watch like some, you know, like five foot kid, AAU like on the court with him and you're like, Oh yeah, that's right. Like he's still playing against other high school kids or whatnot. Like, I don't know. It's, it's amazing to me that he would be projected this high and he is like, there's some projections that have him inside of the top six from a mock draft standpoint. Like I get it. Like, you know, I wrote down in my notes too, like Indiana, Indiana could desperately use for like explosive athleticism and a really quick guy, like Twitch guy. And he seems like he's that. I, one of the videos I watched was of his vertical. He seems like he could jump through the gym if you really wanted to, but yep. outside of everything else, man, it's going to be crazy. Like he, to me, he's like the fly in the ointment where he could go would blow up, you know, draft positions, things like that. Like he could go within this top six. And like you said, Sacramento could take a risk on him, or I could see him dropping to potentially like top 10.
1: Yeah, he's a guy like uh, if the GM's very comfortable in his job security, then yeah. maybe he'll be more comfortable taking somebody like that. Uh, but he's a guy that could bust so badly because we haven't seen him, and then in hindsight, it looks like a terrible choice, and he gets you fired kind of thing. So I I, I don't know exactly what the job security is of each GM as you go down the top right. ten, but if there's somebody that's on pins and needles, I would I would imagine he's probably afraid to take the swing on somebody like Sharp. So we've talked about you know a couple of these players gotten through five of them at this point.
2: I think we obviously know who the top three is. I, I kind of feel like I want to make an argument that Keegan Murray might be the fourth best player in this draft. Because, it, like, and I didn't realize when I was watching some of his game, I didn't realize how versatile he really was. Like, transition, ability to finish. He shot 72% at the rim, according to Hoop math. I was surprised by that. A much better three-point shooter than last season. I do wonder – I'll ask you – that's where my first question will be. Do you think that's sustainable? Because he only shot 62% at the free throw line, and that's a really big jump to go from 29% his first year to 39.8% according to Ken Palm his second year. I feel like the real him from three-point range is somewhere in the middle, but if he's like a 36% three-point shooter with his tools offensively, he looks like he's going to be a pretty good player.
1: Yeah, and I I trust the stroke. I I really like – the the mechanics of it just you know I'm not a shot doctor but watching him shoot I I feel like okay yes it it makes sense to me that that goes in more often than uh would be average the the one thing I'll say is I there's almost like a Coors Field aspect to playing for Iowa their offenses are always good the ball movement is incredible Fran McCaffrey's had year after year of they they cut well the the like I said the on ball and off ball movement's great um so I his efficiency, I think, is propped up a little by that. But even if you knock him like 10% efficiency-wise, he's ludicrously efficient. Like he was crazy, mm-hmm. uh, like 130 o-rating last year. Uh, so I, I, I've been mega impressed with him. I, I the, the other thing too is that he's old. He's he's like gonna be 22 before the season starts. Uh, he's not the same age as most sophomores, so I think that might impact the ceiling a little bit. But the skill skill level is ridiculously high.
2: Yeah. And I think, too, like to your point, when, when you're talking about where he could fit and the offensive system maximizing his ability, really good point guard like Sacramento. Again, I think he's a really good fit playing next to De'Aaron Fox type, because I don't think he looks like a really great isolation scorer. Like when they gave him the ball and let him create didn't really go well a ton. But if you're talking about a guy who's going to create some space for you and like a De'Aaron Fox or something like that, I think he'd be a pretty good fit for a team that's looking for something on the wing. And that'd be Sacramento.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Sacramento, I think playing with Lillard in Portland might help yep, or even yep. like the the schemes that Popovich runs in San Antonio is less on ball, give it to a guy and clear out type of, of situation. So I think any of those would work well for him.
2: All right. Let's go to some of these other guys. And, and like I said, I think Murray, too, his draft position is going to be pretty interesting. There's a couple of these guys, whether it's Ivy, whether it's Murray, that their draft positions are essentially just going to be yes, no props on where they're going to go. Right. And I think like like Murray could be one of those two. Where is he just going to go to Sacramento, yes or no? Probably in the range of like five and a half, I, I would think, for a Keegan
1: Murray draft position prop. Does that sound fair? Uh, yeah, I would think so. Maybe you get it stretched to six and a half because of all the love Sharp is getting as a potential top six guy, but uh, I think right in that range, yep. yeah.
2: Oh, six and a half. That might be tempting to play that under. I think Indiana would look at him, too. They need yep. some help along the wing, but... Oh, man. We'll see. Johnny Velo over at DraftKings told me sometime after the combine, these draft position props go up. So we'll see maybe in the next week or so. Uh, all right. A.J. Griffin. Um, let's talk about him real quick. Uh, was really impressed. The shooting's fantastic. 44 percent from deep, 44 percent on mid range jumpers uh, would probably fit really well. We talk about Indiana next to like a Tyrese Halliburton type uh, defense, though, is another question. There's a lot of a lot of footage of him watching the ball, getting beat on back cuts, not really paying attention too well. But what do you make of Griffin? Because he seems like he's going to be a lethal three-point shooter, but everything else, it, it does lack of.
1: Yeah, he had like an all-time great freshman shooting season, like uh, off the bounce, off the catch, off screens, like every every stats through the roof, his synergy splits are incredible. Uh, but there's not a ton of burst on the ball, and he, he's coming off a bunch of serious knee injuries. Like I don't think he played as a junior or senior in high school because of injuries. So people are worried that maybe that sapped some of his athleticism. Uh, he was like a top three high school prospect before that and fell a little because of the injuries. And then yeah, defensively, I, I worry that maybe he's the Parker, like just, I think maybe he tries, but the, the, his head gets in the clouds, a ton off the ball. That was a big problem with Duke this season was teams could beat them with back cuts, with running actual off ball action uh, because they had, you know Mark Williams, monster defender. We'll talk about him. They had some decent defenders individually, but they still got cooked in in a lot of their losses. And it, Griffin has the tools; he has the size to be a good defender, but he just he just wasn't this year. So I, I do worry about that. Is he? You think he's top ten? Like I just I, I feel like you can find
2: off-ball three-point shooter. Like he's an effective shooter, but given some of his flaws, like I am surprised that he is projected like solidly within the top ten.
1: Yeah, I think medicals will be huge for him because of the injuries, junior and senior. Like if people are really comfortable that he's going to you know, he's going to maintain fully healthy, there's no risk of further injury. Uh, and maybe he recovers some of the bursts that he showed uh, early in high school. Then I could see there being a little more upside than just a, a, sh- a wing shooter. Like he could actually do something on the ball if he gets there.
2: So one of my favorite guys that I I think has some upper mobility here. He's projected to go tenth in um, actually no eleventh in Gavoni's latest mock draft in New York. Uh, Benedict Matherin is a, a guy I like a lot. Like he he is a fantastic shooter. He's got an awesome motion. It's super high up. Um, the release point's really high too. His jump his jump shot like it's like he's trying to jump as high as possible. It's crazy how high he gets on some of his jumpers. Looks like a really solid athlete and good in transition. You know, shot creation, maybe not so much, but he can cut really well. Like, I think he could be a really great off-ball threat. I, could he be a top-ten pick? Because I look at a guy like him, and I see top-ten written all over him, I personally at least.
1: Yeah, and he's, a like, super bouncy. like yeah. One of the best dunkers in college basketball when he got uh, his feet under him. And, yeah, like, I, the first thing you see is the high release. So I, I'm glad you hit on that. Uh, he, he elevates – he had some, I yeah, would tend to disappear a little bit. Like you get that with some of these wing guys where if he's not the primary creator for his team, every once in a while, he'd go a game where he'd be like, why'd he only take six shots this game? It, it doesn't make sense. And Arizona was awesome. So they didn't always need him to be the guy, but uh, yeah, that, that was a little bit concerning and that makes him more of like a secondary creator guy. I don't think he'll ever be a primary, uh, but the tools are there athletically The the shooting is real um, so if you think you can kind of craft that into the ultimate three and D guy, then I, I kind of buy that. Like he's not as long as Mikhail Bridges, he's not as disruptive, but there's a chance he could be that kind of a three and D impact.
2: Yeah, and right now, so again, projected to go to about 11th. that's Gavoni's latest mock draft. Makes positional sense, I think, for Indiana, uh, who does six. The Washington at number 10 could work. San Antonio's been pretty intriguing. They got some backcourt talent uh to Murray as point guard. He I think he would work well next to him, and they just unloaded Derek White. So I think they do need a little bit more there. Um, but I, I think I'd be comfortable in saying he'd be top 10. So I'd be really curious to see what a draft position would be like for him. I put down twelve and a half as like a draft position we could see for him. If that's the case, I think I'd play that under, but I, I might be a little high on that.
1: Yeah, I, I think twelve and a half is probably good. I mean, I don't he doesn't strike me as I'm just looking at the twelfth pick, Oklahoma City. I don't think he's the kind of gamble that Presty wants, like yep. the 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 swing for the fences kind of guy, but anywhere in that top 11 uh, or, or from seven to 11, I think it's totally possible for him. Yeah.
2: All right. The other guy that I was really impressed with um, Jalen Duren, out of Memphis. And I think this is, this seems pretty simple that there's sometimes in drafts, whatever sport it's just like, you know, square peg meet peg hole or whatever you want to call it meet the square um that would be jalen duran in portland like portland their their center position is a nightmare Yusuf Nurkic nurkits is a free agent this summer so we'll see what they do with him i mean it's drew eubanks Trendon watford reggie perry greg brown the third nasir little like that's like their draft that's their depth try at forward power forward and center duran just makes all the sense in the world i think for portland and he seems like he's a pretty good player too
1: Yeah. He's a physical monster. Like uh, the size, the athleticism, the physicality he plays with uh, outstanding. I don't, I I hope people aren't spooked off of Memphis centers because Wiseman has underwhelmed because I think Durin is totally different. He's really young. Uh, He's, he's still 18 right now. And I think that is, that is worth considering he was a reclass up guy and was super productive despite reclassing up. That's, that's pretty rare. I think Marvin Bagley is one of the few that, uh, reclassed up and was immediately a stud. And, and Duran was kind of the same thing. Had some weird backcourt issues with Memphis where maybe he didn't get the ball as much as he should have because of the kind of ball hog guys they had in their backcourt. So I don't hold that against him. I, I think he will be a force right away as shot blocker, rebounder. And he's got like the mobility and athleticism to be a guy that could switch if you need to on the perimeter. Yeah.
2: I don't, you never want to call anything like a mortal lock, but Portland just seems like a perfect match for him. They desperately need somebody like him. This is the Hardwood Handicappers podcast. Johnny Davis. This is one I'm really excited to get into with you because um, I watched him play. And it's not that I'm underwhelmed by Johnny Davis, it's just like, so he's a fantastic defender, obviously. And that's going to be, I think, an attractive piece to a lot of people. Six foot five. Looks like he's about like 200 pounds. Showed the ability to defend multiple positions. Uh, He can force turnovers too. He's got a nose for the ball. So you really like a lot of that stuff on that end of the floor. Um, And this is where maybe it's just like Big Ten basketball and Wisconsin basketball. Like outside of driving and drawing fouls, what's his game offensively? Because I like you're underwhelmed by the three-point shooting, only 30%. He's... Uh, He's a good free throw shooter. So, again, that should translate to better three-point shooting. Um, But outside of that and the ability to force fouls, 61% at the rim, 34% on mid-range jumpers, 30%, uh, like I said, on three. It's just a really underwhelming stat line. Is that just because he played in the Big Ten or is there something there that I'm kind of on? Uh,
1: A little bit to Big Ten. And I think the big uh, kind of split in his season was he he did an ankle uh, against Nebraska on January 27th. And I, I pulled the splits of his shooting before and after then. Uh, So before that injury, 16 games, he was a uh, 37% three-point shooter, 27 to 73. And afterwards, the the next, uh, I think, 15 games, he went 10 for 48, like 21%. I think there was something there where his lift kind of went away. I I think uh, Bart Torvik, a, a college basketball analytics guy, had done something about it. He had so many dunks in the first 16 games and almost none in the final 15, and some of that's competition. Uh, but really, I, I think there was definitely something there where he had lost some burst, some explosion, some lift on the jumper and his actual jumping ability. So I'm kind of giving him a pass and maybe, you know, the NBA teams will get a better feel for his medical and how he shoots the ball through workouts and stuff. But I'm pretty high on him. I, I think halfway through the year, he was probably like a you know potential top five pick up in that uh, mm-hmm. Keegan Murray range as like, wow, this guy burst onto the scene as a sophomore in the Big Ten. Uh, but then he faded because the shooting faded, so you have to kind of assess. Do we think that that first half splits, uh, those first half splits are real? If they are, then yeah, I mean he's he's got even more you know juice than you're talking about. Uh, and for context, his two point shooting and free throw shooting didn't really fall off the same way as the three point shooting, so it makes you kind of think it was the uh, the the ankle. But we'll see because yeah, he's awesome defender. He comes from a team that is really disciplined defensively, so I think he's gonna know. Uh, have, have a mind for it right away. Uh, and the offensive game is the question. So I, I kind of buy the shooting, but we'll see if he can do it at a high volume in the pros.
2: Is he is he a one or a two in your mind?
1: I think he's going to be a two. I think he yeah. should be a two. Um, maybe he's a, a hair undersized for that, but he's strong and he's, he's I think he measured pretty well at the combine, too. So I, I think he can play the two.
2: Yeah, because it's like the uh, projection for him in, in some of these mock drafts. Washington has landed him a couple of times uh, that you've seen a running mate next to a Bradley Beal type. That would be an interesting pairing, just because Bradley Beal is pretty ball dominant, but he's actually more of a two. So you wonder how like that backcourt like works together uh, with one another, and what would be interesting there too. Talking about the three point shot again, just about positional fits. Because when you get to this point of the draft, it's about projection and whatnot. But sometimes you get a little bit more positional fit. Um, how he fits for a Washington team that did not shoot the ball very well. Like hopefully that translates, but they did not shoot very well at all. And I don't know if it would make a lot of sense to draft a guy like that, but if you're saying, like I said, the free throw numbers translate, and if you're talking about the uh, the injury kind of holding him back, if he ups that in terms of percentage, he could be a pretty fit there, a pretty good fit there, you know?
1: Yeah, seems solid. I mean, like I, I could see New York or Cleveland. I, Cleveland, he kind of fits the identity with, with Mobley yep. and Jared Allen, some of the defensive physicality that they've got going. Um, so, you know, he alongside Garland, too, in uh, Sexton, he's a bigger, a bulkier guard. Uh, but yeah, I think anywhere in those those early teens, uh, again, we, we, without the numbers, without yeah. the actual numbers, we're, we're kind of guessing, but um, I, I think early teens is where he'll end up. Yeah.
2: I'd be curious to see what his position prop will be, too. But I would assume double digits of some sort, whatever it is, 10 and a half yeah. or higher uh, for what he's going to be in terms of draft position props. All right couple of guys. Now, I haven't had a chance to watch these guys, so I'm going to refer to you, except for one of them. Um, the, that would be the, the outstanding player, Ochag Bajie. Um, But Malachi Branham and Mark Williams. I, I'll give you the floor for these two, at least in terms of how you project both of them, because, as I said, I haven't gotten the chance to watch them as much as some of the other guys you talked about or some of these combine darlings that we're going to bring up. Uh, but they have been – this is where you get to the point where, like, the, the ceiling and the floor for some of these guys are all over the place. You know, Mark Williams seems to be a really good fit for, like, a Charlotte team that needs rim protection and a center who can catch lobs or whatnot. That would make some sense. Uh, and then Brandon has been projected to land with Cleveland and it kind of like what we're talking about with Davis, they need a secondary guard. Colin Sexton doesn't really look like that's going to work out for them. Maybe on the move as well. Um, it would make sense that he lands there, but what do you, what do you make of both of those two and, and the fits potentially for both Charlotte and Cleveland?
1: Yeah. I, I love Brandon. I, I, he was the guy that, you know, was like a top 40 ish recruit, but then suddenly was like the big 10 freshman of the year. Uh, just a, monster score like he can really create for himself he has a little bit of a the high release thing that Matherin has as well um, big time mid-range shooter knockdown down threes at a really high rate this year he's not good defensively though <laughs> um, the, he was a big part of Ohio State's problems on that end and they were outside the top 100 in Ken Palm's defensive efficiency and that was with EJ Liddell who's a very good defender Jamari is an awesome point of attack defender and part of their issues were that Branham just could not keep people in front of him. So that uh, red flag for, for teams that are really in need of that or prioritizing defensively. But uh, the offensive package is, is impressive enough to take a chance on him in the lottery, I think. Uh, and then Mark Williams, I mean, people went nuts because of the measurements. that He basically almost Rudy Gobert sized with his standing reach at nine foot nine, four inches higher than anybody else at the combine. Uh, big time wingspan, great shot blocker. Uh, and he like locked down some of the best post scores in, in college basketball this year. He gave Drew Timmy nightmares uh, in the game in Las Vegas. So I, I think he's kind of going to be the the guy you can build defense around, but he doesn't have the same offensive upside. So fringe lottery, uh, somebody falls in love with the physical tools, maybe they, they go for him there. But uh, as far as fit, yeah, I mean, I, I think he could make sense for Charlotte because of what they need. And they, they've got some of the perimeter scoring, but it's time to, to shore up that interior defense.
2: Well, and I think defense overall, right? was like, which leads us because the Hornets do have two first round picks. Um, they're going to be 13th, and it looks like they're going to be, uh, I believe, 15th. Yeah, because they have that New Orleans uh, selection that translates to them. Um, and what, like, one of the projections I like for some of these mock drafts is Charlotte going out and getting Mark Williams at 13th and then Ochak Baji at 15th. You talk about a team who's been pretty poor defensively. And if you're able to grab those two guys in, in this draft, you're a young team. And I, I think those are two really good fits. And Agbaje, I think, is like a dream fit for them. Like they need a defensive backcourt player. And he's uh, he's pretty good, I think, in that end of the floor. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but he projects to be, I think, a pretty good 3-and-D prospect. And I think they really need that. A team that shoots a lot of threes and is weak defensively, those two would fit pretty well.
1: Yep. I I, I love both of those fits as well for them. Agbaje, uh, like the knock on him, maybe not – as great creating but you're not going to need to if you're playing alongside linella ball most of the time so i i think he's a terrific fit for somebody that has their creator in place and you just put him alongside and let him be the knockdown shooter and and yeah really 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 solid defensive player as well so i think charlotte could could do a lot worse than those two guys at 13 and 15.
2: All right, so that covers pretty much guys who are projected to potentially be lottery selections. So we'll see if, again, when these props come out, and we'll have more analysis. We'll be able to get more succinct to it because, of course, we'll know what the some of the odds makers are hanging up there. So I wanted to throw three guys at you that keep coming up in reports of combined uh, good combines and see where you project them to be. And the reason I want to bring them up, too, is I feel like these are guys that you could potentially get like some, like either plus prices or really, really small minus prices on them, potentially being first round selections. It seems like they're maybe heading in that direction. Ah, uh, first one that I wanted to throw at you, who keeps coming up, is Jalen Williams out of Santa Clara. Um, so I we were DMing yesterday, and you know I made the I made the comment like I feel like teams are going to look at him and see what is it like seven foot two wingspan, seven one wingspan, six foot six,
1: the potential ability to shoot, and think, hey, we could get a Mikael Bridges type. But you don't really agree with that assessment. Yeah, I think he's more of an offensive player than Bridges. Okay. Uh, Santa Clara had one of their best seasons, I think their best season in a decade this year, mostly because of his offense, like. He was a great shooter. He ran basically their entire pick and roll system. uh, And he was the reason the offense got up to the level that it did. Uh, They were still average defensively, despite being huge. Like they played two bigs most of the time and still really struggled to guard people. He's obviously got crazy length, uh, but he's not disruptive in the same way that Mikael Bridges was like going all the way back to Bridges freshman year on the, the 16 title team. He was kind of their lockdown defender. That's, that's not the role Williams has played in college. I'd be tough, uh, hesitant to project him in, into that in the NBA. Uh, but I think he can be a great secondary creator, kind of a, not, not the same player, but like the Jordan pool, uh, impact that he's made as a late first round pick guy that had a lot of untapped offensive upside. Uh, I, I think Williams has that. And with the tools he has to project as a defensive player, then you can kind of talk yourself into him. Uh, full disclosure. I am a Bucks fan and, like a week before the combine, I was telling my buddies after the, the Buck season ended, I was like, Jalen Williams is a guy I would love at 24. Yeah. And uh, it sounds like there's a chance he's gone by then because of the the combine he had both with measurables and with his performance in the scrimmages.
2: Yeah, I'd be really interested to see what, what gets hung on him because I feel like he's not a big enough name where you're going to get like maybe a 30-ish or a 29-ish hung on him in terms of a draft position. Maybe, like I said, like a small plus price on him to be a first-round pick. But he seems to be one of those guys that is – like firmly put his foot in the door of I'm a first round selection.
1: Yeah, I, I think people are going to talk themselves into the the upside because of the frame and because of the the playmaking instincts he showed. I, I will almost certainly be betting an under on him. Yeah,
2: all right, um, we're in agreement there. Uh, what about so one of the guys that was really impressed going back and watching uh, some of the combine five on five stuff? Nembhard looked pre- Andrew nemhard looked pretty good. Uh, he looked really nice in some of those performances. Uh, one of the stat lines: twenty-six points, eleven assists. Some really nice passes in transition. Really good reads uh, in terms of running pick and rolls with some of these guys. And I think it's even more impressive because these are guys that he's, like you know, he's getting on the floor with for the first time essentially, and he's still reading the floor pretty well. Uh, Nempard is seems to be a really attractive, especially in an NBA uh, where you know these point guard plays is obviously essential uh Nembhard seems to be a guy that's going to be a pretty quick riser I, I wonder where he would be in terms of a prop because I know some got him as like a top 35 top 40 prospect but again we're talking about flirting with a first round pick uh, I wonder where he would land in a draft position because he seems to be one dude that was rising after the combine as well
1: yeah he's he's a little older uh four-year college player so you know some of the teams down at the, the back end that have multiple picks like I'd be surprised if he went 30th to Oklahoma City uh-huh. uh, where they're maybe looking to gamble a little more but uh, I, I think he's super effective. Like the the pick and roll stuff he showed in the scrimmage was fantastic. Like kind of the uh, snaking the pick and roll, keeping the defender on his hip or on his back and and forcing the defense to, to play five on four because he just had his guy in jail. Uh, he had a bunch of uh, pull-up jumpers against drop coverage in those scrimmages. Yeah. Something he really didn't get a ton of chance to do at, at Gonzaga. Uh, they were playing more through their bigs. He ran a lot of pick and roll, but didn't have the freedom to shoot as frequently and had a lot of weapons with him. So he was passing more, but yeah, I, I think he's the perfect kind of uh, late first, early second point guard. That can be a, a great backup guard, Monty Morris kind of type, that sort of guy that uh, can score for you a little bit, can, can really set others up, but uh, it is more just going to be steady, solid and can knock down shots when he needs to.
2: Yeah. And that's, it, that's where the position prop is going to be pretty interesting because the top end of the second round is where you see some of these older guards go. Right. Like Jalen Brunson comes to mind um, when, when he came out. It was three years at Villanova. Right. And then he comes out and he's like yep. a top end of the second round type of thing. Malcolm
1: Brogdon was the same way.
2: Yep. yep. So and, and that's where you tend to see these teams take that chance on like the longer in the tooth guards. And like that would be a pretty good sweet spot for him. Like if you're talking the range of like 45 and a half or so, uh, if a draft position prop is hung out there on them I'd be really curious to see what it is. But he seems to be uh, right in that wheelhouse in terms of being one of those guys worth uh, taking a wager on there if you're yep. a team um all right now this is a guy that i actually i had not even heard of until i was reading combine reports so i'm sure you have watched him before but all the rev- the uh, reviews seem to be clo- glowing Quavian smith out of nc state uh seems to be really taken off in terms of what he did at the combine a lot of these scouts seem to really be enthralled with what he brings to the table so so what is he in terms of a player
1: he is a big time shooter uh okay. both from deep and off the bounce uh he basically played in a system where he and Another possible draft darling, Darian Sebron, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, we're given just free reign, like kind of you have the ball. We'll run some pick and roll, but it'll be a lot of isolation, not a lot of off ball movement. And so both those guys, it showed off some, some potential NBA skill sets. And Smith is just a lights out shooter. Uh, his free throw percentage doesn't really say it, but he shot almost 40% from deep on a ridiculously high volume. He's just tiny. Like he he's, He's short. He's got uh, almost no weight on him at this point. He was a big part of NC state having one of the worst defenses in power conference basketball. (laughs) Uh, So he's more developmental where you're like there's shot creation, there's shot making here. We've got to kind of fill in everything around that. Uh, But he's really, really young too. So there's a lot of time. He's not quite like Anthony Simons maybe, but I I think that's a decent uh, comparison in terms of shot making and, and age.
2: That's funny. I was, that's the, that's the comp. I was going to ask you if, if Anthony Simons, you know, that projected out to be because in the trailblazers and it would make sense, right. Cause he's developmental, the play the Blazers get him. His first year doesn't really play that much until like the last game of the season. And by all accounts, you know, you don't really see him, but every single report was Blazers aren't giving up Simon, like uh, Simon, Simon's They They love him. He's really good. He projects to be something really good. And, um, uh, Smith seems to be potentially one of those similar type of players where you don't know that much, but teams are going to grab him. They're going to be like, no, we're not giving him up. He, he seems like he's going to project to be pretty good.
1: Yeah. I think I'm guessing he'll be like late first, where okay. you get the, the four year guaranteed deal rather than the second round. The contracts are a little, little and You don't know exactly what it's going to be. Um, so I think people will want to lock him into the development to like first round contract, have the four years, have the restricted free agency at the end of that, where you're kind of in control of a developmental guy, uh, like the same way Simons or, or pool or some of those other young guards that go late before the second round, like we mentioned was where the, the more veteran guys that are maybe lower ceiling where we see. I like
2: it. Oh man. I'm excited. It, it should be a lot of fun in terms of what this draft uh, provides, even though, um, Oddsmakers don't really buy into the NBA draft as much as they do the NFL draft. So
1: we'll see uh, what offerings are out there as disappointing. Well, the odds as- makers hate those information-based events where it's not, you know, it's not a projection system. It's true information.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, but God, for, I mean, look, the, out, of, out of all these drafts outside of the Major League Baseball draft with like snore, I'm not going to I'm not going to scout <laughs> high school pitchers. Uh, but out of the two drafts, like the main ones, this one is the most chaotic outside of the top three. I mean, for odds makers, there's a lot of potential to get some money here because, yes, there's information, but NBA drafts tend to be pretty chaotic.
1: Yes, chaotic. There'll be trades there, and, and there's a lot of misinformation too, where. Reports will be leaked by agents just because they want people to think that their guy's going to go somewhere. So yep. that's you got to sort through what's real and what's fake in that, in that regard.
2: Almost like a report that says every NBA team but the Orlando Magic are saying that the Orlando <laughs> Magic are going to draft
1: a <laughs> yep. junior, right? Yeah, exactly.
2: All right, Jim Root, three-man weave, Phil 68. Dude, uh, appreciate it. That was a long one. So thanks for sticking around. Awesome insight. And then once all these props get set up and everything, uh, if you'd be willing to come back on again and we can dissect some of those numbers.
1: Yeah, willing and able. Hopefully you guys will uh, – you'll want me back. That's the key. Of course, every single time. Jim Rue. Thanks,
2: man.